This Sunday concludes, completes our seventh summer in the Psalter, and we've been preaching consecutively through the Psalms for three months, each June, July, and August since 2016. Uh, But next week, we'll return to Hebrews, um, picking up where we left off in the end of May at the beginning of chapter 13. But Lord willing, uh, next June, we will begin another summer in the Psalter, continuing to make progress, starting with Psalm 64, and I hope, Lord willing, for years to come. As we close out our time in the Psalms this summer, I just want to give um, a little bit of a brief personal testimony regarding the Psalms themselves. It was about 10 to 12 years ago that I really intentionally began to put praying the Psalms at the center of my devotional life with God. It became um, the primary way um, that I prayed. And since that time, I've prayed through the Psalter over that decade plus as a whole. Um, Psalm by Psalm, I've done it Psalm by Psalm, the whole Psalter, uh, many times. And it has absolutely changed me. I want you to know that. Praying the Psalms has changed who I am. I'm a different person, a, a different pastor, a different husband and father than I was a decade ago because of the way in which the Psalter, the whole Psalter, has shaped me during that time. All of them, all 150 of them. The Psalms in those years have taught me to hope. They've taught me to lament. They've taught me to long for the God who promises to judge the wicked and destroy evil. To pray for his judgment. The Psalms have taught me to be persistent in prayer, to not give up. They have taught me to praise God in all circumstances. The Psalms have taught me what it means to abide with Jesus as I pray with him. The same prayers he prayed on earth and the prayers that he prays now, even now, at his Father's right hand. I commune with Christ when I pray the Psalms, for he prays them too. The Psalms have taught me wisdom to better love what God loves and to hate what God hates. The Psalms have taught me to long for the resurrection of the dead and to not fear death, neither my death nor the deaths of those whom I love. The Psalms have expanded my imagination for the glorious possibilities of the Christian life. They have, in the deepest sense, enlarged my soul from the outside. The weakness of the modern church in America is undebatable, I think. There are hundred examples of this, and I won't trouble us to name them. But I'm convinced that one of the primary reasons for the weakness of the modern church in our time, in our nation particularly, is that God has given us an inspired prayer book, and we do not use it. We don't, largely speaking. If you look at the modern American evangelical church, A few psalms here and there, perhaps, are favorites, are well-known, but there are many psalms that most American Christians have never heard, not once in their worship on Sunday mornings. And because the prayers of the modern church are not fundamentally shaped by the prayer book that God has given them, 
Their prayers are weak and insipid and shallow. And the same generally is true for the modern church's faith and obedience. Of course, I am not, thanks be to God, responsible for the church in general in the United States. But as far as our church is concerned, it is one of my deepest desires for us in the years that are before us to push against the prevailing current um, in the modern evangelical church and to set ourselves on this task that we might become experts in the Psalms. That's what I want for us in many ways above lots of other things that we could be as a church. I want us to know the Psalter, all of it. I want us to know the Psalms better for us not only to pray them and preach them and sing them in our worship on Sunday mornings, but for the Psalms to form the center of our spiritual lives throughout the week as well. And so, beloved, as we conclude another summer in the Psalms, and of course one of the reasons we're walking through the Psalms each summer is so that I can try to persuade you of their value and their importance. But as we conclude another summer in the Psalms, beloved, I commend to you the Psalter, the whole Psalter, Each of you possesses in your Bibles the only book on Christian spirituality and prayer that you will ever need to own. God in his love and his mercy and his wisdom and his generosity has given you the Psalms and they're so precious. And so as we conclude another summer walking through them, I simply encourage you to use what God has given you. Pray the Psalms, friends. Pray them in your homes. Pray them in your personal devotional life. Pray them on your commute as you drive to and fro. Pray them in the morning when you rise. Pray them in the night when you wake and cannot sleep. A very simple way for you to begin to pray the Psalms is to use the daily Psalms that we, that we publish each month. There's an insert in your order of worship today for September's readings. And every day of the year, we assign one to three psalms based on their length, taking us through the whole Psalter four or five times in a year. I'd say just start there. If you don't know where to start, start there. Take that insert home and begin to pray the psalms each day. And by pray them, I don't just mean read them silently in your head, to be clear. I mean speak them out loud to God. Verbalize them. Say them to God audibly. If you do that each day, those daily psalms that are given to you by our church, it'll just take five or ten minutes. They won't take long. You can pray them one time through in the morning and another time through in the evening. Or even better, you can come here on Wednesday or Friday mornings at 9 a.m. And I'll be here. And we'll pray the psalms together. We'll do it together as we gather for morning prayer on Wednesday and Friday mornings. And I promise you that if you do this, friends, if you do it, you will begin, if you begin to pray the Psalter, the whole Psalter, not just two or three Psalms that you most gravitate towards, if you pray the whole Psalter, the Spirit of God will use that. It will use these ancient words, these ancient prayers to transform you, to make you like unto his Son, Jesus Christ.
for he prays the Psalms, all of them. Listen now to God's word from Psalm 63, which is printed on the back of your order of worship, if you'd like to read along there. And a quick explanation about the context of this psalm. We're told it was a psalm of David written when he was in the wilderness of Judah. It seems most likely to me that this comes out of the time in David's life when he um, was exiled from Jerusalem because of the rebellion of his son Absalom and, and David fled um, the city and the sanctuary of God, um, trusting that the Lord would again deliver his life. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, or my soul cleaves to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, make us now by your Spirit to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and even inwardly digest it, that we might even more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The kingdom of heaven is like a feast. Those are the words of our Lord Jesus in the parable from Matthew 22 we heard a few minutes ago. That's what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like a banquet, of the richest foods prepared by God for God's people to feast upon. That's what our Lord says. Think about for a moment some of the finest, most satisfying meals you've ever had. Maybe at a white table, um, white tablecloth restaurant, you know, really nice place. Uh, Maybe at some hidden spot, uh, a restaurant that didn't look like much on the outside, but you know, it had the best food you'd ever tasted. Maybe a Thanksgiving or Christmas feast in your home where you were surrounded by friends and neighbors and relatives and loved ones and and the noise of the conversation and laughter and old jokes and old stories were just as as much a part of the flavor of the meal as the food itself. 
Maybe a particular dish that your mother or grandmother or grandfather made when you were growing up. Nothing fancy, nothing complicated, but the, the memory of those biscuits, right? That fried chicken, that apple pie, or whatever it might have been, sticks with you even to this day. The kingdom of heaven is like that, Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is a feast. And the feast begins, of course, at the very beginning of the scriptures themselves. Jesus is drawing on the Old Testament as a whole as he tells that parable. Because in the beginning, God makes a remarkable world, a beautiful creation full of good things to eat. And he stands before Adam and Eve and he says, all of it, all this goodness, all this food, all this feast is for you to enjoy. And the feasting continues. In many ways, it is perhaps the most central theme of the Bible, the way in which God prepares a feast for his people. When God visits Abraham to tell him and Sarah the good news that Isaac will soon be conceived and born, he tells them at a feast that they share. When God delivers Israel out of slavery, he does it by telling them to prepare a feast and kill a lamb. And eat it. And he doesn't just deliver them from Egypt by a feast, he does it for a feast. He delivers them for a feast. When God brings Israel up to Sinai, we are told in Exodus 24 that Moses and the elders go up the mountain on behalf of the people. And there, in one of the most fascinating and mysterious passages in all of the scriptures, we are told that they ate and they drank with God. And when God establishes the ritual practices that provide the structure and form for Israel's continuing life with him after he's delivered them from slavery, he places at the heart of that life a shared meal, a feast, the peace offering, where part of the sacrificial animal is burned on the altar and offered to God as food, and part of the animal is given to the worshiper and his family to eat in God's presence that they might share a feast with the God who delivered them from Egypt. And when God describes for Israel the good land that he will give them in Canaan, do you know how he does it? He tells them it is a land that is full of good things to eat, a land of milk and honey, a place where they will feast. When Solomon, early in his reign, where he fulfills most clearly the faithful king, spoken of in Deuteronomy, he establishes at the heart of his life at the people a rich and generous table. You can read about it in 1 Kings. It's remarkable. It's for the people in Jerusalem, for them to come and eat. And the writer of 1 Kings tells us, he sums it up this way, Judah and Israel ate and drank and they were happy. And when Isaiah prophesies of the salvation that will come On the last day, by the hand of the Lord, he describes that salvation like this. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make, not just for Israel, but for all peoples, a feast. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. That's what he says in Isaiah 25. 
And of course, when the Son of God comes in the flesh and lives among us, he comes by his own self-description in this way. He comes eating and drinking. Jesus' ministry in the Gospels is largely one of feasting. His first miracle is to provide wine for a wedding feast. And he shares his table, his movable feast, so to speak, as he goes around Galilee and Judea with Pharisees and with friends. And most controversially, he feasts with tax collectors and sinners of ill repute. But the most surprising thing, that the culmination of all of these feasts is when Jesus, on the night before he died, when he sat in the upper room with his disciples and took the bread and said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And then in like manner, he takes also the cup and says, this cup is my blood poured out for you. Take and drink. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? All the history of God preparing the feast for the people. Now Jesus is showing that the ritual meal that he is giving to his people will show them that the feast that God prepares is not just a gift he gives them. No, God himself is the feast. God gives himself as bread and wine. God gives himself to his people that their hunger might be filled in him, that they might feast on his goodness. And indeed, beloved, this is who your God is. He is the one who invites you to take all of your desires, all of your longings, and I mean all of them, all that you hunger and thirst for, and feast on him. Find satisfaction in him for all those things. And this is not, to be clear, just an eschatological promise that will be fulfilled at the end of time. Yes, that is true. But as our psalm this morning shows us, God means for himself to be a feast for us now. Right here in this world, in this wilderness, God has prepared a table for us in the midst of our enemies. He gives himself to us as a feast here, now, in this life. Indeed, friends, this psalm, Psalm 23, should be imprinted on our minds and taken on our lips as a psalm that prepares us for the Lord's Supper. This psalm is a fundamental place in the Old Testament scriptures where the promises of God come together for us to see and believe that God has created us, as our catechism says, not only to glorify him, but also to Enjoy him, to feast upon him forever. Listen to the wisdom of the psalmist. David begins, he says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. And why? Because my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Here, David isn't just talking about his actual physical circumstances in the wilderness. He's talking about this life, this world in which we live, which is itself a wilderness. David describes his longing for God's presence as thirst and hunger. There is nothing good to eat except for God, 
he says. And he longs for it. He thirsts for communion with God. His flesh faints and hungers for communion with God. And by doing so, by giving us these words to pray, he invites us to join with him in this longing, in this hunger and thirst. Because hungering and thirsting for God is the mark, friends, of a truly spiritual life. It is what it means to be alive in this world to God. The hunger and thirst for righteousness, as our Lord himself has said. And we hunger and thirst because that longing has not yet been fully satisfied. And and often when God leads us into the metaphorical wildernesses in our lives, it is so that the hunger and thirst that we have for him will grow deeper. So we will be stripped of the false sources of consumption and our hunger will be aroused in a new way for the one who can satisfy it. It's when our false sources of sustenance are taken from us that we learn, as our Lord says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Jesus meant that. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are those who thirst. And indeed, in verses 2 to 8, we see from David's own testimony the way that God satisfies him in his thirst and his hunger. First, Verses 2 to 4, David says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. That's not a metaphor, that's a place. The place where God's people worshipped him together, Sabbath day by Sabbath day. So have I looked upon you, David says, in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, David says. In your name, I will lift up my hands. You see, in verses 2 to 4, David tells us that the first place the Lord satisfies his hunger and thirst for God is in the sanctuary and the gathered worship of the people of God. Here, David recalls how Sabbath day after Sabbath day, he has worshipped God in the assembly of Israel. And how it was in that place, in the corporate worship with God's people, that he beheld the power and glory of God. It was in that place and in that time that he learned that the steadfast love of God is indeed better than life itself. As he praised the name of the Lord among his sisters and brothers. And it was in that place that he blessed the Lord's name with uplifted hands. Here, friends, David is teaching us something crucial about the spiritual life. The hunger and thirst that God gives us for himself are satisfied by him. But our hunger for God is not satisfied in some esoteric or mysterious way that we have to go and figure out somehow for ourselves or create. No, beloved, God does it for you. He gives himself to you through the means of grace that he has established. It's not a secret. It's not a mystery. Word, prayer, sacrament, these are the places where God nourishes your souls and feeds your hunger and slacks your thirst. And he does it nowhere more regularly, more faithfully, more sweetly than in the gathered and public worship of the people of God. It has always been so. If 
you read the record of David's reign and Israel's king in 1 Chronicles, you will see there how intentionally he works to establish the glorious worship of God's people in the sanctuary that he established for them in Jerusalem. Yes, he does not build the temple as Solomon does, but he does everything but. He puts together the worship of God's people in a way it had never been experienced before in Israel's history. And it is in this sanctuary that David recalls how God has fed him with himself, how his hunger and thirst for God has indeed been satisfied. I hope you come hungry, friends, on Sundays. Hungry for God. Because that is why he has established a sanctuary. This sanctuary. This assembly of God's people. This table in the wilderness. For you. Because he intends to use it to nourish your souls. But in verses 5 to 8, we find in the psalm that the communion of God that David experiences in the sanctuary also carries out into the rest of his life as well. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, like that same kind of language that Isaiah uses. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When? This isn't in the sanctuary. This is somewhere else. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. And David wraps it all up. He sums it up and says, My soul clings to you, O God. Your right hand upholds me. You see, David's communion with God is not limited to the public worship of God's people. No, the public worship of God's people is the engine for his communion with God all throughout his week, all throughout his days. David says here that God also satisfies his hunger and thirst with fat and rich food as he remembers God upon his bed in prayer, as he meditates on the word of God, in the watches of the night. And it is there, in that place, in the silence of the night, in the quietness of his bed, that David also communes with God. For even there, where he is alone, he is not alone. For David is covered in the shadow of God's wings, and he sings there for joy. And all of these things, in the public worship of God's people, in his private spiritual life with God, he says to God, my soul clings to you. And here David uses an intimate term for communion with God, the same verb that's used in Genesis 2, we are told, where we are told that a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. It's the same word. In that way, David says to God, in that way, just as a man and a wife cleave to one another and become one flesh, in that way, my soul cleaves to you, even when I'm alone, for your right hand upholds me and strengthens me. And it is because of David's feasting on God, it is because of his rich communion with the Lord and public worship and the quiet intimacy of his private life with God that he can confidently trust the Lord to deliver him from all his troubles, all his enemies. That's why he says in verses 9 to 11, 
but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackal. But the king, the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him, that is by God, shall exult. For the mouths of liars shall be stopped. And so, beloved, as we conclude this morning, I just want you to consider this question. Does this psalm ring true for you? Do you know what it is to feast on God in the way David describes? Do you know what it is to find your hunger and your thirst satisfied in the living God? Do you come to worship on Sunday mornings hungry? Hungry for God? Do you come because you long to feast with Him and you expect Him to satisfy? Do you know what it is, beloved, to be satisfied in your communion with God throughout the week, in the private places of your life, in your bed, in the watches of the night? Friends, I think that this psalm is given to us by the Spirit to explode and expand our vision for the possibilities of the spiritual life, of what it means to actually commune with God in this life, in the here and now. Because I suspect that many of us are far too easily satisfied with the quality of our communion with God. We feast on him a little bit, and we think we're full. But then we turn with our our bellies still rumbling, our throats still dry, to a hundred other things in this world that seem to promise satisfaction. Beloved, God, God is a feast. God is the one who satisfies your hunger and your thirst. The Lord Jesus himself came to give himself as a feast for you. And he says to you today, even as he says by the prophet Isaiah, why? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, your Lord says, and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Friends, he is talking about himself. That is what he means. And this psalm, which speaks so deeply of the riches, of the satisfaction, of the feast of God, is given to us in the first person. So that as we pray, even if we don't quite fully understand it or believe it or trust it yet, we learn to say with our own voice, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. And we might think, well, I mean, sort of, you know. But this psalm teaches us to say, earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And to say also with David, my soul will be satisfied. As with fat 
and rich food as I behold you in your sanctuary, as I remember you in the watches of the night upon my bed. Beloved, I promise you this, however much you know of communion with God, at this point in your life, there is more. There is so much more. There is always more of Jesus for us to know, for us to feast upon, for us to be satisfied by. And if you dare to give Jesus more and more of your longings, if you venture to put your hunger and your thirst on him, he will, beloved, give you satisfaction. He will give you more satisfaction than you can presently imagine as possible because you are so used to finding it in places that do not satisfy. For each one of us, there is more of Jesus to experience, deeper communion with him to know. For our God is a feast, and he makes us this promise that those who dare to hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.